Hello, dear friend and cherished listener. Thank you, as always, immensely for joining me here on The Tully Show this week. We will be joined by author Dan Ozzy discussing his book, newly available in expanded paperback edition, by the way, entitled Sellout, the major label feeding frenzy that swept punk, emo, and hardcore. Covers a whole bunch of bands from those genres from the mid-90s into the early 2000s. I was inspired to check out so many of the bands Dan documents in the book that I did a whole separate podcast just sampling bands I'd heard of, bands I'd never heard of. Oh yeah, I was meant to check those guys out on an episode of my Patreon-exclusive show. I heard these guys are good. So listen to this, enjoy it, check out Dan's book, and then come find me on Patreon for the follow-up companion pod. You know the URL, patreon.com slash Mike Tully, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Coming to you live on tape from an above ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, the author of the newly expanded paperback edition of a book entitled Sellout, the major label feeding frenzy that swept punk, emo, and hardcore 1994 to 2007, available in newly expanded paperback edition form for pre-sale now. Hello and welcome, Dan Ozzy. Thanks for having me. I like to have my book title so long that by the time you say all of it, that episode is pretty much done. Yeah, it's a good, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a great big tale. You're in the radio biz. I don't need to tell you about tales. There's a great mm-hmm. big tale on the intro that allows for, it doesn't matter if we're talking about uh, Lookout Records or the geopolitics of, of uh, China in the Pacific sphere. I can get the whole title out every single time. That may be the only thing that intro is, is good for. <laughs> yeah. So before we talk about this book, tell us about, yourself specifically what is your background in regard to the subject of punk rock hardcore emo selling out and uh, and how did it prepare you to write this book and inform the way that you wrote this book um whenever i get that question about like why why this subject why this era why did you write this book i always say uh have you ever seen that movie slumdog millionaire yes when it came uh, out yeah mm-hmm. about the kid who's like not very bright, but somehow Ace's Jeopardy, just because he happened to live through every question he w- had to answer. <laughs> so it kind of feels like that, you know, like for better or worse, this is just like the era that I lived through, like the conversations and arguments that I had, like I grew up. Um, I was one of the 10 million kids who saw Green Day play Woodstock and like had his mind blown. And that was, I think I was, 10 or 11 at that age and so straight you know from there i just like kind of invested myself in that in that world and then and then the more the more involved you got in it at that time it became like a very contentious uh time i guess to find that kind of music because that's when like it was becoming more corporate and people were like pretty pretty aggro about that not happening and uh and yeah so like really just this is just the um 
the era that I lived through, a lot of these bands were like very influential on me growing up. And um, I, I mean it when I say like Green Day, like, you know, like if I hadn't seen that Green Day Woodstock thing, I probably wouldn't have written the book 20 something years later, you know? Before we discuss your book, I gather from your Twitter feed that you're a pretty voracious reader. You're always posting stacks of here's the the stuff that you just read. I envy you for the amount of time <laughs> you seem to have to read. I see, although I know you've read a number of books since then, that you recently read David Lee Roth's memoir, Crazy, yes. Crazy from the Heat. Thoughts? Um, okay, so I read a lot of rock memoirs. Yeah. Um, I've helped people write theirs. I'm helping somebody write theirs now. Oh, incidentally, and, I, I I read Laura Jean Grace's book and enjoyed it. And you were the co-author. Right, yeah. right, right. And, and, and something I've learned in that process of like helping somebody write their memoir is I, I really think that a, a, an artist's memoir should sort of like reflect their music, right? I think it would be very weird if you if you are reading like a, a silly like if you were reading David Lee Roth's memoir and it was written like Jane Eyre or like something very serious, you'd be like, well, this doesn't this is a disconnect. Right. So in that regard, like I think it's fitting like the writing style is bonkers, as you can probably attest to. It's like all he's just like kind of skit scatting all over the page. And there's no like he'd never start sentences with like I it'll always be like. 1984 at the Viper room. We're chill, like chilling back there. Guy comes up to me. He says, what are you doing? You know, like he's just like riffing. It's it's all over the place, um, you know, and then like once he finally gets going, he'll he'll stop and just tell a one page thing about like a bikini woman he remembers <laughs> kissing or something like that. And then also to one very weird thing about that book is like. I feel like in a memoir, when I've helped people write them, I'm very cautious of like when you introduce information, when you introduce characters and motivation. He just like assumes like if you're reading this book, you know who Eddie Van Halen is. You know when Van Halen got started. You know the hits. I don't have to explain it to you. So like it's a very weird memoir in that nothing is explained at all. It's not a history. It's just him kind of like waxing about things he remembers and what he feels. Yeah. Um, so it's in that lot, regard, I think of, it was really unique. It's a lot of bozy, bozy, bop, ziti, bop. Is there... Totally. Like <laughs> if you've listened to, I like, I, I can't imagine like a David Lee Roth fan being very disappointed. Cause like you said, if you know that, that, that like style that he has, you'll, the book fits right in. So in that regard, like I think it was a success. I often, uh, when I am writing, when I'm reading a rock memoir, just having gone through the process, I often uh, sympathize with the person who was hired to help them write it. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, no, that was probably a, a fun collaboration. But then I like read that one and I was like, woof, the poor, this poor person, like their name isn't even usually you'll get like a David Lee Roth with Mike Tully or whatever. Yeah. This is just like. No, nobody wanted their name attached. It must have been like wild to be like, hey, David, you can't do that in a sentence. And he'd be like, why? And you're like, ah, I actually don't have a good answer for you. I, I guess so. Let's do it. Um, So, yeah, I, I really like whoever helped Mr. Roth write that book. Shout out to you. I can't I can't imagine that was like a smooth 
uh, process. Yeah, I, I've co-written a couple of books, and so I always take an interest in... Uh, there's a couple different levels. One is there's the name of the celebrity and then there's the name of the writer and it's prom that who actually is a writer that helped them with it and it's prominent and it's respectful and then there's the ones where the celebrity's ego was too big so they lead the acknowledgments in the back with and i want to first of all i want to thank blah 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 who worked with me tirelessly on this book so it's like you didn't yeah, give yeah. credit but you did totally acknowledge and then there's the ones where it's like you obviously had a co-writer that you are too cool or too uncool to reference in any way, shape, or form. And then there are the ones where it's like, wow, you actually didn't. You truly did not have uh, a co-writer. And it, and, and it shows the in, ones, a, in a major way. But there's also probably the ones, too, where the co-writer took the gig because yeah. it was money. Sure. And they said, do you want credit? And they were like, no, you don't have to put my name on the book. That's fine. <laughs> I don't I don't need to be on this book. That's OK. You can you can leave me off of it. I, um, I also seem to recall that Van Halen got squeezed into like eight pages in the middle of the book as if it was this weird little speed bump in his that's otherwise. That's like He spent so much more book. time ta talking about being 13 at Cafe Wa in the West Village. So, than I he mean, did. if you're like looking for like a, a, a history on Van Halen, wrong book for you. Like I really didn't know much about Van Halen. Same. And I did not come out of this book having learned anything. No. Like I, I still know nothing about Van Halen. <laughs> so like really wrong book for you if you're looking for like a, uh, like a, a comprehensive history of the band. But if you want to just some, be, see some like a maniac, <laughs> yeah. be a, a maniac on page on the page, <laughs> I think it's in a way kind of good. And honestly, too, like the truly the most heinous. This is a, a great encapsulation of how he approaches art and probably cannot be told no or talked out of it. The cover photo is one of the most heinous book jacket covers I've ever seen in my life. It is a horizontal photo which he tried to use in a vertical context and it's not a good photo it's a it's a photo of him holding a woman in the ocean you can tell like not done for the book just like a photo that he had and was like yeah let's just use this and it and then on the back it's another like if i'm not mistaken a horizontal photo cropped into vertical where he's like walking with two little people from behind just so bizarre, like out of all the photos and like there's a photo section in the middle, which has some decent photos and like why he was like, yeah, no, I want I want this <laughs> out of focus shot where the sun is just like in my eyes. I have no idea. Like, I can't even venture a guess into trying to get into that man's headspace because I learned from reading the book that that's a fool's errand, you know? Yeah, as I'm, as I'm sure many uh, people who've tried to collaborate with him over the years could have told you uh, going in. Let's talk about your book. Finally. Okay. <laughs> Selling out. Yeah. What? Let's let's establish some sort of ground rules here for uh, so everyone knows what we're talking about. What, if anything, did the term sellout mean to you when you were, I don't know, 14 to 16 or 17? I'm assuming you were some form of teenage rock punk snob. What does it need? Does it mean anything different to you now than it did? Because um, I would say my relationship to the term has evolved sure. quite a bit. Yeah, first of all, yes, I was such a teenage rock snob in such an unfounded way. Like I was like 15, 16, and I was like, oh, no, no, that band's not punk enough for me. Like what? <laughs> I was in high school. Like why I thought that I have no idea. But there was like a, a, a sort of um, at that time. I mean, like there's, there's lots of... Um, interpretations of selling out and 
when applied to music of this time that applied to what how commercial i guess they were but the line that i drew for the book's purposes were whether you were on a major label or not and at that time um that was really contentious and i don't i don't know that kids now like necessarily understand that because pre-internet there was like a really hard line between like the corporate machine and a sort of like underground network and when bands kind of crossed over um from one to the other fans got really angry about that and that that's kind of like when you would hear people call be called sellouts you know um now fast forwarding to now i think that that line between um underground and corporate has blurred so much that it's hard to really even call somebody a sellout because i I mean what doesn't it's really unfortunate but like what doesn't corporate america have its claws in right like even if you consider yourself an independent artist um and you're on an independent label you might unfortunately get stuck playing live nation venues because most of the venues in the country are owned by Live Nation, or if you want your music online, um, you know, probably some tech company um, has their claws in your music. So it's really hard to like not to keep those separate nowadays. And then also too, like, you know, um, it's hard to really begrudge like, okay, so like in, um, you know, like there's a band re- uh, that I knew a couple years ago when they, they, played a show overseas because doc martens i think paid for it it was like a show in south africa and they were like yeah we'll we'll go that's awesome because uh we would never be able to afford to play south africa all we have to do is film some stuff for them and like put doc martens on the flyer and that's it and i just feel like years ago like in 1994 you had doc martens on your flyer that would have gotten you run out of town but now it's just like well, yeah, I mean, like, where else are our artists going to get money from? You know, so like, I don't feel like fans are begrudging their favorite bands anymore for taking a paycheck because the paychecks are so much harder to get now. You know, like a touring band, like Green Day, before they went to a major label, they were selling 50, 60,000 copies of their indie releases and they're getting like probably five bucks a record. So they were doing pretty well. Nowadays, like, Indie bands like don't get five bucks a record for 50,000 records. You know, it's like really hard um, for them to make money off of album sales. And so I I just feel like fans really begrudge their favorite bands uh, less now because like, oh, you had a song in a commercial. Well, yeah, I mean, how else are they going to get money? So people people, I think, are a little bit looser about like when their favorite bands um, take corporate money. Yeah, I I think from my own perspective, there was just a game, a sort of kabuki dance that we expected everybody to do. If you were in, if you made a music video, but you didn't look at the camera, well, okay, you were keeping it real. If you just kind of played hard to get and you didn't uh, wear your ambitions on your sleeve, maybe you could sign with a major label and not be considered a sellout to 14 year olds like me for whatever, you know, that mattered in the scheme of things. I mean, now I, 
I think selling out is a real thing. Selling out is when you do things with your art that you're not comfortable doing with your art that you don't like doing with your art because you are convinced that it will allow you to become more successful or make more money. That the, it, it, There is such a thing. That's what it is. Anything short of that. I remember when Built to Spill signed the major label deal and it was like immediately, and I love, my favorite album is their major label debut, but it was like, don't worry guys. Doug will not go anywhere near the microphone he's singing into to do the vocals, and every song is going to be nine minutes long and have no hooks. So, aha, presto, we signed with the major label, but we didn't sell out. Now, I just it, it, it it's just very it's very clear when Jewel all of a sudden had a lap a purse dog and started making songs that uh, uh, Jessica Simpson had passed on. That was selling out. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's really more about um, the intention than the act. But just in terms of a baseline, before we go through some of the bands that are in your book, can you think of a band from, say, 1991 through 2007 that you consider a sellout? 91 through 97? Any of the... I mean, like, that's that's the entire premise of my book. So it's hard to, you know, like, I feel like there's a lot of nuance that I'm not going to give you. But like, I mean, you know, Jawbreaker is the one that like broke everybody's hearts because, you know, like they I I think the reason that they got such an intense um, blowback from the punk scene is because they really said like they made a point of saying many times like it's documented in the book, like. Many times they would get on stage and be like, you know, you may have heard major labels were interested, but fuck that. We're never going to do it. And everybody would be so happy, like, wow, like our heroes, our indie heroes. And then for for reasons that are personal to them, um, they decided to do a complete about face and they signed with Geffen and they did a major label record. And so, like, I don't know, I think I think like when that term was so hot um sell out i think that jawbreaker kind of epitomized um what rubbed people the wrong way like it's it was almost like if you're gonna do that deal do it but like you know for a year they would tour and be like we're not gonna sign we're not gonna sign and people loved it and so like i feel like it, it felt like a betrayal to fans do, um, do you personally feel that way do you personally feel that that the jawbreaker sold out i like you know when that album came out in 95, I think I was probably too young to understand the conversation around that. However, um, when I was uh, older, when I was uh, 18 or some 17, uh, it was against me who pretty much did the exact same thing. So to me, like against me was my jawbreaker. Sure. Um, and because, you know, they did this. They made an entire documentary uh on dvd about how funny it was that major labels were interested in them and here's a dvd where we're pranking them they're we're making them take us out to fancy dinners and 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 put it on their corporate card and then we say no to them and then like six months later i think (laughs) after that dvd came out they they signed to warner so um to me that was the one that really hurt personally and i think you know like something that uh like putting it like just understanding it on a personal level i think from my experience what hurts so bad in a case like that is not even that the band is like going against what they said not even so much that they're going to get paid what it is for me is that like i used to see against me at really small venues and it felt so intimate and it felt special 
and it felt like something that existed outside of 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 the 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 machine or something like that and then you know like when a band that you love like that grows up um and they graduate to bigger venues all of a sudden it's like oh i don't think i can afford to go see them anymore cuz now they're not playing at the vfw hall down the street now they're opening for the foo fighters and if i want to go i have to pay 100 $20 plus service fees or whatever to go to like the Meadowlands or what and I can't afford it. So I think it like on a personal level it just feels like you're losing that band and the specialness behind it and I, you know like you feel as an adult man now I feel bad for like begrudging anybody they have bills to pay I get it but as a fan who like really helps who supports a band early on it's hard to like it's hard to lose them. You know, it, it feels like losing a, a a girlfriend or boyfriend or something in a way, like somebody got too big for you or something like that. So you kind of tell the story of selling out of the perception of Stella of selling out through individual chapters on individual bands that represent sort of the, the different phases of the era, the entire era of the, the book covers you. I made it about halfway through the book. You, spend some time with offspring but sort of as an aside you don't devote a chapter to offspring they're contemporary you do a chapter on on green day they broke around the same time if memory serves what are your thoughts on the offspring and their career and their trajectory with within the the context of the subject of the book Right. Well, so like the offspring, uh, you know, the decision like not to devote a chapter to them really was because like, I think that the remarkable part of offspring story is smash, which came out the same year as dookie, mm -hmm. but smash was at the time, the greatest selling independent record of all time. Yes. And so that was a disqualify, you know, like the, the, the chapters are about major label debut albums. And so like, I wouldn't have been able to do a chapter on smash. I would have had to do a chapter on their major label debut, which was 97's Ixnay on the ombre. <laughs> and I'm sure that that was like an interesting story because they had, they had been the most successful independent artists of all time. What do they need from a major label? Right. I think that's interesting, but ultimately I did not really think that people would want to read a chapter on Ixnay on the ombre, I think or maybe right. they would like, maybe that, you know, like maybe that, that can be written. Um, but to me, like, I, I think that like smash is the really interesting part of their career and 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 you know i there's there's facts that i learned that I, I didn't fit into the book but i think are super interesting like not and and kind of like dark like um you know epitaph records was making so much money off of smash that it, i think uh you know uh, founder brett gurowitz of bad religion he um developed like a heroin problem he had so much money coming in and he got into drugs and i think in a ways it had a lot of like uh, it made sure that Epitaph was a, a record label for the next 30 years, but I think it had a lot of like growing pain. So I, I do think that that story is like very interesting. It just um, thematically didn't fit into sellout. Yeah. The trajectory of Epitaph is really interesting in it's in its own right. It's sort of a shadow story to the one that you told. I can recall, I'm not a big Epitaph fan, even really a punk fan. I'm not a big bad religion fan, but I can remember seeing Brett literally at like a folding table at the warp tour with a bunch of like merch and stuff for a bunch of screamo bands. Mm. And I'm like, is this how, how passionate are you about, you know, 
they killed us by night or whatever the hell the name I know. Is. You know sometimes but... like he'll when I see him tweet about that kind of stuff, like the new falling in reverse. I'm mm. like, is this how you imagine your life turning out, Brett? It's, <laughs> like, it's, it, it's so weird. And and you know he's far richer than I am. So what does he give a shit what I think? Exactly. But I, but I don't know. Like they've had a really interesting model, which some other labels have adopted. Which is, I don't know even how to feel about this. Like, maybe this is a really admirable Robin Hood approach to take, but they take these like awful metalcore warp tour bands, like fucking bring me your Saturday in yes. white, whatever, you know? Right. And, um, and they put their records out and, and they sell, a, they make a lot of money off of them. And then they do put out records that I don't know, like, they put out propaganda now. They right. put out Converge. They put out like Joyce Manor. And so, like, I don't know, in a way, it's kind of cool to take money from this like awful, awful, profitable uh scene and invest it into like the Joyce Manners of the world. I think that's kind of cool. So I don't know. Like, I, I don't know how to like reckon with that. I'm not a business person, right? But that model does seem to work for them. Yeah. Um, I don't think that if you ask the employees, most of them anyway, they're like as proud of the sleeping with, you know, whatever over like Joyce Manor. But um, but hey, it, it keeps the lights on. So I don't know. I don't know. Right. And that's what I, and I don't mean to be overly critical. I just used to see Brett from Bad Religion sitting there with a bunch of emo T-shirts and just go, boy, that's uh, that's interesting. That's, I, I, don't, yeah, I mean, Brett's I, a businessman. I, I don't know what right? to make of that. Right. Yeah. He's a businessman. He's, he, he does. I don't think he really gives a shit about cred. He's not Ian McKay. Yeah. Right. Like, he doesn't care about his, like, uh, like cred legacy. Um, he, he wants to make money and, and he wants to make his artists money. You know, it's not like he's like, I'm not, I'm not calling him like a selfish, greedy pig or anything. Like, he's, he pays the, the bands that I like a lot of money. So, I don't know. Like it's hard. It's hard to follow them for it. Something that I, I think those those teen years, those formative years, seem like they go on forever. Um, and I was a little surprised in getting into your book that the way you describe the height of the grunge era, when the feeding frenzy happened and everybody every band in seattle got signed and then everybody oh shit there's no bands left in seattle quick sign everybody in san diego oh shit quick go to chapel hill sign everybody mm -hmm. that whole the the grunge imitators the the candle boxes who gave birth to the disturbed who gave birth to some weird mutant form of butt rock that lingers on in zombie form to this day the actual prime era of grunge as a mainstream commercial force you say had kind of already burned itself out within like two years. Yeah. Like that's really uh, an interesting thing that I, uh, you know, at the time it felt like um, everything was coming out. Like when I was a kid, it was just like, Oh my God, like all this stuff is on the radio. All this stuff is everywhere. And it was really prolific, but I think it was kind of short lived. And, um, and to be clear about really... that, because I can already hear the Twitter mentions, once bands get through the door, then they can live on. When Nirvana killed hair metal, Poison was still successful. Guns N' Roses were still successful. So yes, <laughs> indeed, Soundgarden, well, the... Soundgarden continued to make successful records. Alice in Chains continued oh, to make yeah, successful yeah. as long but as Lane was, okay, Stanley. I'll... But nobody, nobody was, there was nothing fresh breaking from that world once Green Day came along. I will tell, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you two quotes 
uh, paraphrase in, from the book from A and R guys, so that the the onus is off of us. Yeah. Um, one of one of them said that they were managing a lot of metal bands in the eighties, and they said that uh, once Nirvana came along, they looked at the sell sheet for like that. For, you know, like when Nirvana kind of changed things, they looked at the drop off on metal, and they were like, oh, that's over like overnight, like, and that, and that guy went out and as a manager signed green day, Pennywise, uh, rancid. So like that person saw the writing on the wall, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that Nirvana killed this. So like, yes, poison this Motley crew, they were still going, but like, I think as far as like what dominated MTV popular culture for rock music, it was Nirvana and grunge. But then, yeah, it was really kind of short lived. And and the other anecdote I'll give you is this guy, Rob Cavallo, who was the guy who signed Green Day. And, you know, Nevermind came out in 91 and uh, he signed Green Day, I think, at the end of 93, early 94. And so that was like three, two, three years. And he said that when he was um, talking to his radio person or his MTV person at Warner, she was telling him, like, you know, the feedback we're getting from MTV is that kids are tired of the, like, sepia-tinted, grunge-looking videos. Like, they're kind of, it's kind of, they're kind of burned out on it, and they kind of, like, want something new, you know? And that was when he realized, like, oh, my God, Green Day could be that, because it was, like, colorful, and it was punky, and it was like a little bit more, you know, like a lot of that, like uh, grunge stuff was a little downtrodden. Oh, yeah. But Green Day was just like in your face, like it's, it, you know, like um, it popped. And so I think that's why like Green Day kind of became, in my opinion, the successor to what grunge had had built. But yeah, like that, that scene was like very, very kind of short lived. And I, I know that like, yeah, like Pearl Jam is still going and. And lots of the bands are going, but like as a fad, as a phenomenon, I really think it lasted three years, maybe, you know, and then also too, once Kurt died, that's like, you know, that, that cast put a wet blanket on it. Like that was really sad, you know? Um, And so I think that was kind of like marked the end of it a little bit, or at least the beginning of the end. There's an interesting element to selling out which is that it, i i think we we t- on the outside especially kids who haven't you know lived and had to make a living and all that we just assume that to anybody who's credible there's sort of this golden ticket sitting there and as long as they're willing to sell their soul the devil has the briefcase full, briefcase full of money waiting for them and to an extent it's true you can get a record label in advance i'm segueing into talking about jawbreaker here just so you know where i'm where mm-hmm. i'm going with this yes there was a literal i mean almost literal suitcase full of money they got a big advance they were all able to put a down payment on a house at the very very least but we remember the bands who sell out successfully because it was successful. There's the other side of whatever you think of what Green Day did. I think Green Day remained totally true to their music. They literally had everybody was fine when Welcome to Paradise was on a record on Lookout Records. How could you have a problem with when the exact mm-hmm. same fucking song with the exact same arrangement is released on a major label album? That's not selling out. They're a pop. They're ultimately a punk influenced power pop band. It made sense for them to be really, really big. Now, what I'm getting at is the bands who 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 sell out but no one is is buying Mm. so you spoke to members of jawbreaker for yeah all of them yeah yeah. 
so I mean, it's weird because I my, my girlfriend at the time was obsessed with them, and I remember feeling like a cheese ball because I didn't really care for the the records that they made mm-hmm. before he had the voice problem and they had the cool guitar sound on the record. So I remember feeling cheesy for buying a Dear You, the major label debut T shirt. Now I'm reading this book. The album sold fucking 40,000 copies. Oh, well, now and if I, you could do that, you'd be like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and they headline Riot Fest and everything, yeah. Um. So, so uh, where do you think their decision sits with them? Let's assume that the band was fated to implode mm. for personal reasons. What difference would it have made if the last album had come out on an indie with slightly lower production values, do you think that they would look back on their career very differently if they hadn't taken the deal? Okay, so I think that they were just doomed to have only a few more months right. together before they imploded. So yes. what they did with that time uh, is is the, the fork in the road that you're talking about. And I think, um, you know, like, I, I think if they had just done an indie record they probably would have still imploded but the record wouldn't have been as good i mean like you know jawbreaker gets a a lot or they got a lot of shit at the time and and i and i want to be clear like i'm not dumping on them because i do think dear you is an astounding record so i think in in hindsight they made the right choice now as far as the weird second life they've had you know i just i did an interview with adam their drummer recently because they went on tour to promote um, the 25 year anniversary of Dear You. Now, you know, they've they've reunited and they've they headlined Raya Fest. They're sort of taking like a victory lap. And, and and, you know, like the place where we landed with it was like, maybe this is just how it had to happen. You know, like it, it just I mean, you talk about an album being ahead of its time, like it really took a long time for people to catch up to that record. And And I think it's so cool now that like, they do get to take this victory lap on it. Um, but like, I, I don't know. I, I really think that like, it's it's weird to say, but like, even if that record had done really well, even if something happened where they had like a single on it and it really took off, I don't, I just think that they were in a bad place and I don't know that success would have been the glue that could have held them together. Like maybe they would have held their nose and done it for a little bit longer, but I just think that they were not, they not getting along well enough to keep going now, you know, they're adult men and they're like, they can look, they can have like more perspective on it. And I, and they're more comfortable. Like, but you know, they were really like at that time, you have to also remember, I think when they broke up, they were about to turn like 30 and they'd been playing in that band since college. And so it's like pretty much all they knew in their adult life. And I think they just needed a break at that point. So The long answer to your question is I think it it probably worked out for the best because um, they were going to break up anyway, in my opinion, and they made a really good record before they went out. And And maybe if, you know, maybe if they had done it for an indie, it wouldn't have been good enough for them to have this second life now. Who knows? You know, um, I think like things worked out in a really interesting way for them. Um, and I'm glad that 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 record is at least celebrated mostly now. In reading this book, I had a weird thought that selling out the concept of that in the 90s and early 2000s is kind of similar to how I feel about cancel culture nowadays. And follow me on this. 
people always say, well, how come this one comedian can say this, but this other comedian can't say that and they're canceled. And it's like, well, because it matters who your fan base is. It's all mm. about what your, how your fan base receives this. And if you were already uh, a right wing gas bag, you can say whatever the hell you want. If you have a, you know, a very liberal sensitive audience, then you got to be this, that comes with the territory. You got to be careful, uh, uh, what you do and what you say. Uh, I did not know anything about Jimmy Eat World going into this book, and I'm kind of surprised that I didn't. There really isn't, there isn't this trail of the legend of Jimmy Eat World in the same way that there was with the Green Day, who had the indie trajectory, the Gilman Street, etc. Very, very similar in, uh, in a lot of ways to Jawbreaker. Jimmy Eat World didn't have to worry about being perceived as sellouts for mainly for the reason because they were they're very very i think that they were naturally cheesy people they were being true to who they were which is mm -hmm. a very straightforward very accessible kind of i mean one of the guys quit the band to be a mormon missionary they're very <laughs> they're not the yep. most punk rock guys you're ever gonna come across but they didn't have a fan base to betray which was sort yeah. of a, a thing that ended up sort of weirdly well, working for them that's one thing that we didn't talk about with Green Day and mm -hmm. Jawbreakers backlash. Like that yeah. was a lot of uh, Berkeley yeah. kids who, you know, I'm generalizing, but some of them came from like, so like a lot of them were middle to upper class white people who could afford to begrudge uh, bands for, uh, uh, for what their, their financial decisions were. And, and Green Day was from a really run down, um, you know, like shithole town called Rodeo. It was like a, a, a finer refinery town, you know, and like, and then they've got these like kind of like Berkeley white liberals telling them like what they can and can't do. Whereas like Jimmy World just growing up in the Southwest, um, there wasn't a scene there where there were like up where there was a pecking order. You know, like, I mean, there were literal rules in Berkeley where they was like, you know, Tim Yo was like, kind of at the top like ran a ran a punk zine like a despot you know and and everybody else like got in line behind him jimmy world they were just from uh you know it was arizona and like there wasn't they were just they were just kids just like trying to scrape together shows in churches or wherever they could um so it wasn't like they were gonna get blasted by the by the like establish like the punk establishment there because there was none you know so like they just got to enjoy the freedom to make decisions about what their career was going to be without this like fear that they were going to get tackled by their own hey, tell me something I, I was always led to believe that the the issue with uh pop stars if particularly if you're in the business of management and and all that is that they don't, you know, pop stardom tends to last about 18 months. So you want to come from a scene so that when stardom fades, you can fall back into the audience that hopefully hasn't turned their backs on you when mm -hmm. you when you made it to the mainstream. I honestly don't just don't know the answer to this question. What was the fate of what continues to be the fate of Jimmy Eat World beyond their little moment of mainstream success? Because to me, I don't want to compare them to Good Charlotte, but I, Good Charlotte also faced that challenge. Good mm. Charlotte couldn't just go back to the Warp Tour and headline. Well, Jimmy Jimmy Eat World is like one of the few acts that have been like grandfathered in to the major label system because they broke before everything collapsed. So yeah. now, Jimmy Eat World, it, their their platform is high enough. That probably as long as they want to make records, 
um there will be a major label there to um to give them an advance to do so mm-hmm. which is really cool like and, and it's funny i wrote a i wrote an essay about this one time about how um the middle like i i love jimmy world like jimmy world in my opinion has written two perfect albums which i i and and many other very good ones but like two like masterpiece albums and i don't think that like many bands can say that but um of of their catalog I have to say that my least favorite song is the middle. I hate the middle. I fucking hate the middle. I don't like the way it sounds. I don't like the the mental connotations that I have when I think about like Apple commercials with Taylor Swift singing it. Like all the like pop culture references have like killed the song for me. I don't really like the sonics of it. However, I am so grateful that they have that song in their catalog because it it put them on that platform that i mentioned that they're big enough now that they can probably put out major label records forever and get a paycheck and good for them because they keep writing consistently good records so i'm just really happy that they had this one freak single pay their bills forever even if i hate it (laughs) you know know, like i wish that i if i never heard it again i'd be happy but at the same time if it is paying jimmy jim atkins's morgan mortgage good for the middle you know it's funny that i don't think or talk about jimmy world very often but it was only a couple weeks ago i was talking about them with someone and sweetness came up the follow-up single and 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 the person was very familiar with the middle who is and and hadn't even heard ah isn't that crazy and and i was i remember that being like okay okay mainstream world it's never that we need to break up. It is never going to work out between us because, okay, I don't like the middle. It's very on the nose. I find it very cloying. I find the lyrics uh, preachy and an obnoxious. Mm-hmm. Story. I just do not care for this song. But the follow up single was great. And the, fo- and, and the follow-up I, I, and the follow-up single did nothing. I, I think I was well, working in pop radio at the time, and it was just like, oh wow, yeah. what's going to happen when they put out the actually good song? And it really it 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 it, it, it paled in comparison. People liked it, but not as much. Yeah. And it didn't have this like pop culture ubiquity yeah. that the middle had. I mean, the middle, I think, was a top five single, right? Like it, they had like a top five radio hit. That's incredible. And Sweetness, yeah, it it, it got I also too like, I don't know, Sweetness. This just shows how bad I would be of an A&R guy. Hell yeah. Because like the middle, I think, sucks, but obviously became a culture cultural phenomenon. The middle. Uh, um. Sweetness, I think, has a dynamic hook. I think it has a better video. I think everything about it is better. And yet people didn't respond to it as much. So what do I know? I clearly should just stick to writing books and not uh, trying to make money off of of singles because I clearly can't call them. I have a friend, Josh, who works at a record label and he does this stuff. And he he's really good at, at being like he can hear something that even if he doesn't like, he can be like, yep, but kids will like that. I can tell you kids will like that. And then like five months later, it's like a big, it's like a huge song on TikTok or whatever. And and, and so like, I'm just too much of a snob to separate, like to understand like, yeah, this sucks and people will like it. I can only be like, this sucks. Why would anybody want to listen to this? Get it off. You know, I can't take that extra step to be like, 
ooh, how can we make money off of this awful song? Yeah. Oh, I know. No, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of money to be made. It's a very rare talent to have, as they say, golden ears. You know, I'm not a big hip hop person, but I was a massive outcast fan and I was really disappointed by the split double album. And I, I, as I say, I was working in pop radio briefly and the guy who ran things at uh, Z100, the big, the biggest top 40 station in America heard hey ya once and he's like mm. that's just gonna be and i'm like oh have you like it's, have you have you heard equemini have you heard at aliens and 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 we were and and we took marching orders from him it was like this guy's not wrong this guy says hey ya is a big hit and it goes without saying he was right and we were wrong it's a skill like yeah. it's it's a skill that to hear something and say other people would like that this i can only listen to it and make my own judgment call. Right, right. That's what it comes down to. Uh, yeah. I don't want to spend too much time with uh, Blink-182, Mark. I sp uh, spent a little bit of time with him professionally, just a, a delightful human being. And it, it seems that they sort of ran an end around by not playing the sellout game to begin with. They never took themselves all that seriously. I love, as he puts it, uh, We this is a quote from Mark Hoppus in your book, we're kind of like Fisher Price, my first punk band. That's what he thinks. You know, fans it's think funny because like every, I think that like generations in music fandom are pretty short lived. It's basically the time, it's basically the length of a college uh, run. So four yeah, years. I right. think every four years you kind of get new fans, right? Um, and so every four years, there is a new band that sort of ropes people into this kind of music. If you can be that band, what a great place to be. Because like Green Day, it was Green Day in 94. And then if you recall Green Day's trajectory, by the end of the century, they were kind of like fizzling out, like pre-American idiot. Like oh, they had time. diminishing returns on their records. I remember uh, when MTV was trying to tell me that I was going to like uh, Warning as much as I liked Basket Case. And it's mm. like, I'm not even sure that's, well, a, okay, not sure that's I, a single, bro. I like those post-Dookie records. Insomniac, mm -hmm. Nimrod, Warning. I actually like those, especially in hindsight. But if you look at it from sales and popularity, it was clearly on the decline. And so right as they were putting their like B-sides and rarities album together, along comes Blink-182, who basically took what Green Day did and made it even more accessible, more poppy, more suburban, which I think is a really key element. Yep. And they just blew up. And yeah, like you said, like Mark is one of the few people I've ever talked to from this scene who like wants to be on the radio and has zero hangups about it. Like not, not only has no hangups, but like doesn't understand like he's like, I love my music. Why would I not want it? Like the, the, the phrase he always says to me is like, um, he's like, I want Blink to feel like a party and everybody is invited to it. I don't I want I really am proud of my music. Therefore, I want as many people as possible to hear it. So, like, um, I think that that's why that they you had a band who was talented and marketable and wrote fun songs and had no qualms about punk hangups and were ready to just step on the gas. You know, like, it's no wonder they became like a arguably out like Eclipse Green Day in, in popularity, you know, like uh, it's no wonder why. And the last band I wanted to talk to you about is a band that probably most people listening to this would be less familiar with if they're even aware of them at all. I I find I I'd kind of forgotten about the Donnas. Oh yeah, yeah. And the Donnas are 
they're a fascinating band. Now, I think if you're, and I'm not going to put you on the spot, I'm sure I don't really think anybody from the Donnas is ever going to listen to this podcast. But I mean, if you're going to lay the sellout thing on any of the bands that we've talked about, okay, Jawbreaker, sure, made a career out of saying mm-hmm. never sign with a major label. In the classic sense of sign with the major label, play the game, do the Pantene commercials. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't yeah. even aware that the, the Donnas were... It's a it's a it's a long, complicated, interesting interesting story that I want people to read the book to learn about. But the Donnas didn't even come up with the initial concept for their band. Kinda, yeah. Like you can read the nuances, yeah, in the book for sure. But like to your point, yeah, they were they were the most agreeable to doing any kind of licensing video games. They uh the, their drummer Tori was in a Target commercial. You know, not just like their music. She was playing drums in a Target commercial, like Budweiser, everything. Like they really just took the paychecks and good for them. But um, but you know, like in 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 reflecting on it now, I don't begrudge them at all because um, you know, female bands like all the ones that I talked to had it really hard in that like it seemed like in radio at that time, there were just like limited slots. It sounds fucked up. And and like, I think we like to think of ourselves as more progressive than this now, but there were limited slots for female alternative artists on the band, on the, on the radio. And I had multiple people who told me the exact same thing, exact same band and everything that said, uh, you know, their record label would say, Oh, well, radio only has slots for two female artists and one of them is evanescence and one of them is going to be whole and both of the, i knew people were telling the truth because everybody i talked to used that exact same example of like so that's just to say it was really hard uh harder for female bands to get to like inch their place into the radio and so like they were like well commercials seem to like like a female driven rock song so let's get the money there and so like good for them you know i can't really begrudge them they just they just took it all and and you know like they had one like pretty big major for a record for a major and then after that they're they're kind of uh they're kind of like well ran dry and so in hindsight yeah they really had like two years that was their like really like golden era time so like yeah take the money while you can for sure you know and they're a band that's like not now trying to do any kind of like reunion stuff i think they're very content to not be musicians anymore so they really had a limited period in which they could get money and paid and they did so you know like hats off to them my my four-year-old daughter got weirdly obsessed with uh, Cherry Bomb by The Runaways. So we were actually mm-hmm. just watched the music video for that like three days ago, which it's really, really cool, except for the part where there's like a close-up of Cherry Curry's crotch. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like these girls are like 15. And I couldn't help but... And, and, and uh, Kim Fowley, the Fowler? Fowler. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. right. Even makes a, a cameo appearance in the scene in this. I couldn't help but think that... Uh, the ways in which the world had changed where nobody literally th- uh, threw the Donnas to the wolves and put them on a Japanese tour and gave them quaaludes and said be back in a month you know that there was a, a little bit more protection afforded for young artists, young people, young women in those days but the extent to which it kind of really was just the Runaways 2.0 with if you can't fit into this 
square peg of selling sex, etc. Nobody has the creativity to figure out where you might fit in the market, at least if it's a major label we're talking about here. Yeah. And it's it's really just like messed up to hear that now, especially like with modern mindset to be like you are you are setting a limit on how much female rock you will let through the door, you know, and I think that there's like fewer gatekeepers in the music industry now that can make those calls. But I mean, that's just like insane to be like. No, we're allowing two through the door this season. Well, you're you're reminding me of something. That, it's tokenizing, uh, I guess. Of course, I'm... yeah. And and I know I've mentioned this a couple times here and elsewhere on podcasts. If you you've probably read the the book Hitmen about the you know the pay for play payola shit in the record industry in the '60s and '70s and 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 '80s. And if you haven't, you should. It's amazing. Yeah, I remember I mean, in that them saying somebody trying to break some artist in the '70s, maybe. And it's a female artist and they go, we can't, we're already playing a woman. Mm -hmm. So the progress mm -hmm. that we've made from say 1977 to 2002, 25 years later is the quota has been doubled. Now they can play two. Right. Yeah. Artists. We went from one to two. In yeah. And, and that, yeah, what, that's equality. what, that's what the, the girl power riot girl thing, man, that's how much the, in, in reality, uh, you know, optics aside, they happen to move the needle. And, uh, I, I, I want to leave off there. There's quite a bit more, uh, in your book in regard to the bands we've talked about and quite a few more bands in your book that we haven't talked about it. If you want to talk about the death knell of, the music industry as it existed in its classic form, the major label system. I mean, the end of the Donna's is, as you describe it, uh, you know, uh, technology malfunctions and trying to add bonus features yeah, to DVDs remember so, those? so people like... don't download the thing. And just a, the album can, I think their last major label album came with a download card for official Donna's ringtones. Yeah. Like if you well, want to, if, if you want to put something on a great on the grave of the major label system, official Donna's ringtones is total. I mean, like it's it's really funny. Like uh, it was funny researching that, um, and you can see in the chapter that the Donna's both scored because they hit one record on the last gasp of the music industry, like you said. Yeah. And then their next record was like kind of on the other side of the hill when it started going down. And yeah, like you said, like. I think between their first and second record was when Napster started coming out. Yeah. And it's, it was so funny researching it to see how, I mean, like we feel like geniuses in hindsight that we can look back, but it was just very funny to see how major label employees were combating this like free music revolution. And so they were like, okay, let's put our heads together. Kids can just download these albums for free there's free music now. How can we make people still buy CDs? And their solution, and this was not like one guy at a at one label. This was like, uh, um, like a network of major label geniuses put their heads together to come up with this idea. Right? They were gonna like lay it out across like five different major labels at once. Was they were gonna have this thing called dual disc? Yep. Which if you bought CDs around 2000 and what was that? Three, four, you probably recall this. That was like you go into Virgin or Tower or whatever and they have a CD and it's like $3 more than a normal CD. But on the backside 
of the CD, there's a DVD component and the DVD has like a music video, maybe some like crappy webcam making of the music video footage. And like you said, probably like a download card for a ring callback tone or whatever, you know? And so I just like, it's just so funny to, to just like look back that these people who probably collectively got paid millions of dollars said like, okay, kids, are getting free music how about if we charge them three dollars more for garbage that they don't want <laughs> and and like obviously like it was a calamity it didn't it didn't last um but yeah i definitely got suckered into buying a couple of those you know so the paperback edition of your book sellout is uh it, it, it's it's available now it's out in a few days so people can can get it now there it is uh-huh. it feels good when you actually get your hands on a copy right yeah it? yeah i was so eager to get it um the uh there's a bunch of new material which is interviews with a bunch of other bands who didn't have chapters devoted to them in the in the hardcover uh anti-flag the bronx etc you wrote something in an intro to this new expanded um afterward i guess you would say that to me might also function as a decent summary for the book itself here's a quote that you wrote the most common sentiment among these bands um now the time has passed and the dust has settled is the regret over not taking more time to enjoy a rare fleeting moment in the music industry just talk a little bit about what you what you mean by that yeah i mean like it's it's funny because if you buy the paperback um which you can which you should uh if you read the last question of every interview that I put in this afterward, um, usually I, I asked the question, like, if you could go back, what would you do differently? And such a common answer the is, I wish that I had enjoyed it more, you know, because I, I'm talking to people who now are probably in their 40s or so. And they're, you know, like, it's hard to make a living as a musician in your forties. And there was this like last gasp where people were throwing money out and, and there were more opportunities and it was exciting. And so there were a lot of people who like, who were like, yeah, whether it worked out or not, like, I wish that I had just taken it all in like this, like moment where I'm 22 and I'm getting to play with the Foo Fighters and I'm getting to, do this and whatever. And, 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 you know, like the hardest one for me was, um, was Caven who I love and they did one record for RCA. And unfortunately, like their, their bassist Caleb, um, passed away a couple of years ago, tragically. And they were like, you know, just like with our friend being gone, it really just like hit home that I wish we had all just enjoyed ourselves more. You know, it's like, I, I feel like this book covers like a lot of, um, music industry and rock and roll lifestyle type of stuff. But like at, at the heart, like it was just people. And I'm, I, I, it's a, it's an encapsulation of their memories, you know? And like, I, I think people were so worried at that time about make it or break it and the high stakes and the high paychecks that a lot of them are just like right now, all I wish I had were more memories, <laughs> So I think that's a good metaphor for life. Like just build a stock of memories because at, at some point in your life, it's kind of like all you have, you know, it's the most valuable asset that you can have. That's right. I'm, you're revoking glory days by Bruce Springsteen right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go put that on now. <laughs> uh, oh, but I wanted to thank uh, Toothpaste Burrito on my Discord is the person who suggested that I seek you out and get you on the show. So we're eternally grateful to you, Toothpaste 
Burrito, my guest. Yeah, thank been. you so much to like people who suggested me. It's I I I can't get it. I get tagged and stuff like that a uh-huh. lot. Like, who should I have on as a guest? Yeah, and and then I get tagged, and it's it's so cool. Like, thank you to everybody who's like trying to pay this book forward. I like really appreciate it. My guest has been Dan Ozzy. The book that we've been discussing is called Sellout, the major label feeding frenzy that swept punk, emo, and hardcore 1994 to 2007. Get your paperbacks, expanded edition now. Thanks, Dan. Oh, thanks, Mike. 